Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is June 13th, 2014, and you know what that means. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. It's also Friday the 13th. Yeah, we actually know what that's all about thanks to our history segments. i got an interesting history segment for you guys today, but it has nothing to do with Friday the 13th. Before I get to the history segment and your calls, because it's Friday, 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 let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff's an awesome guy, man. Um, you can get a Berkey from a lot of places, but there's only one Berkey guy, and that's Jeff. And I think that's who you should get your Berkey from because, well, why wouldn't you? If you're going to get a Berkey or Berkey accessories, why wouldn't you go to Jeff? He's the Berkey guy. No one else is the Berkey guy. You know, the thing about Jeff is he's a customer service maniac. I mean, the guy just takes care of his customers so well. I, I got an email from him recently, too. I'll tell you there's only one thing I don't like about Berkeys. One. And one, only one thing I don't like about them. When you're putting new filters in or you've cleaned your filters and you need to reprime them. And they got this washer thing, and you stick it up against the faucet and turn the water on. The pressure pushes water through the filters, and then you install them. It's not that big a deal, but usually you get sprayed in the face, and it's kind of annoying. And I've always thought to myself, should there be a better way to do this? We even have a song that says there's a better way to do this. I think it should apply to Berkey's. Um, it does now. They now have a product called the Black Berkey Primer, a little pump ball system that they've developed specifically to prime your Berkey filters. Uh, they're about 20 bucks. I will be ordering one the next time I order a new set of filters, which is probably about time to do, uh, given the insanity and hardness of my water. Uh, I've cleaned them, I think, twice since we've got them in here, and I think it would be a good idea to go ahead and uh, upgrade them to a new set really soon, and I'll be adding one of these primers. I'll put a link, not just to directive21.com, which is Jeff's website today for you in the show notes, but I'll also put one directly to this new product that he has, that I think if you have a Berkey and uh, you've ever been through the spray in the face when you're priming your uh, filters, it's probably a good one to add. And on that note, uh, LPC Survival, which is Jeff's actually co actual company, home of the Berkey guy, has a lot of other great things for your prepping needs. If you've never checked out Jeff's site, check it out today, directive21.com. Again, directive21.com. Uh, next up today, we have a sponsor of the day number two. Yes, I'm stalling because I can't remember. It's Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, I love Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors. Those guys are awesome. I mean, one of my, I, th this is what sold me on Frank. Because, you know, really we're at a point now where we're picking and choosing sponsors when a spot, a spot opens. We're picking and choosing someone to match to the audience that, you know, isn't in a place that's already heavily represented by the audience. So when it came time to bring in someone as a firearms trainer, The thing that got me with Frank was when I heard that he requires every member of his cadre to take classes with competitors multiple times a year to maintain their status as an instructor. Because if you're not a perpetual student, you're not a great teacher. That was it. I was done right there. I knew that we had an incredible partner in Fortress Defense Consultants when I heard that one thing alone. And everybody that's been to Franks for training has come back with glowing reports. Remember, there's a triangle of gun operator effectiveness, the weapon, the ammo, and right at the point of it, 
At the top of that point is the operator. The operator is what makes everything else function. And you can buy ammo and you can buy a gun and you can purchase training, but it doesn't work the same way. You can't just buy it and have training. You have to participate in it. You have to be a good student. You have to be dedicated. And you have to take your training and then apply it to training yourself. And that's what you'll learn from Frank, not just a one-time training session, but how to train consistently to continuously upgrade and improve your skill set as an operator. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. What's Members Support Brigade? What is this thing, the MSB thing I hear about? It's the way you support the show. If you listen to this show and you're like, you know what, I love what this guy does, and I, I, I listen to it, and I value this in my life, then you could decide, well, I want to financially support the show. You don't have to. doesn't matter. You know, there's no – sometimes I get people like, I don't know if I qualified for this because I'm not – M- no, no, whatever. And if you're in debt or broke, don't join right now. But, you know, if it's not a huge burden and you think the show's worth two, uh, two dimes an episode, join the MSB. If you're buying stuff in the preparedness industry and the gardening industry and things like that, then join the MSB. I'm telling you, it pays for itself many times over. That's how I built it. Uh, when I started this show, people wanted to give me donations. A couple people actually figured out how to send me one in PayPal. I sent it back. I refused always, and I continue to refuse to take any kind of donations or charity at TSP. We are a business that delivers value for value. The MSP is how we do that. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, we give you an even better value because we give you a discount to thank you for your service. All you have to do is email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com, put service discount in the subject line, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Again, either prior service or active duty, do it before you join. Because if you do it after you join, I'm going to tell you you have to wait till you have your renewal to be able to do it because it's too complicated to fix it once you've joined at the regular price. All right, on that note, I want to say something about my email. Some jackass has used my email in like a major spam campaign. And it doesn't appear that I've been hacked. It's pretty easy to spoof the send side of something and make an email appear like it's come from someone else. And this could be someone that wants to cause me grief because, frankly, some people do. Or it could just be... Something This happens to people all the time. Um, it's not that huge a deal. I don't feel that any of my security was compromised. And the way I run things anyway, if you got out of my email server, you better be paying attention every 10 seconds or you're not going to see anything. Um, so I'm not that concerned that way. I've already updated some security protocols to, to make sure that if somebody did get direct access that they can't. But I don't think that's what it was. And looking at the message headers, that's not what it is. So right now it's just an enormous pain in my ass that I'm getting a whole bunch of bounces that I have to delete that say, you know, uh, email on, you know, basically all the bounces from spam filtering and bad addresses that the spammer was, was hitting. Um, the other problem, though, and this is why I'm even telling you guys about it. The other problem is when someone does that to you, a lot of times major ISPs look at your email address and say, oh, look at all this activity. This email address represents that of a spammer. And then what they do is they block emails. So several people today I've sent emails to, I've gotten a bounce from you, from your ISP saying that you know your server didn't like it or whatever, and so you didn't get my response. Uh, one of you guys, just so you know who you are, you're emailing me about dealing with life in New Jersey, and I wrote you a beautiful response, and then it got knocked back. So anybody out there that wants to make sure you hear back from me, this is a good idea anyway, 
whitelist my email address in however your email system works to do that. With Gmail, if you just put me in as a contact, I think that takes care of that. The email address again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Um, and on that note, it is the best way to get in touch with me. Now, let's hit our history segment. Episode 1367, so the year is 1367. And I had a hard time choosing between the two segments today. Um, one of the segments from Alex over at the TSP Wixie, Wiki is called Oh My God, the Statutes of Kilkenny, which deals with the English and the Irish. And the other one is called Black Death, King Edward III's Plot, which talks about King Edward III's cemetery plot that became a monastery. And even right now, this second, I'm struggling into which one of these I would talk about, and I think I'm going to go with King Edward's Plot. And I think you'll understand why when I do. Uh, here is Alex's segment for us. It's a brief one. During the plague years, King Edward III of England brought a bought a cemetery near the Tower of London and supported a chapel dedicated to the Virgin Mary in gratitude of being delivered from his many close calls and probably in anticipation of further saving required from the Black Death. It was quite common at the time to make such contributions to the church for this purpose. Now King Edward's, Edward's original efforts have grown into a monastery, He has upped his contributions to about a thousand pounds sterling annually. In near present day dollars, that's about four million bucks. Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. The king's generosity did not extend very far initially. He bought the cemetery and chapel, but failed to contribute much more than a token for its maintenance. It is difficult to know what has motivated the king's sudden interest in a burial plot. Perhaps it has been the deaths of his most trusted advisors after the recent return of the plague. Certainly the loss of previous Duke of Lancaster was grievous to him, despite the fact that his second son, John of Gaunt, rose to take the dukedom. Uh, I'll tell you what it probably was. So the king figures, hey, man, we might all be dead soon. Because, I mean, again, I don't think we get the Black Death in modern day. We're talking about people just dropping over dead every day. If you've ever seen Monty Python, right, and there's the scene in Quest for the Holy Grail where the guy's going through town with the cart, bring out your dead, bring out your dead, and it's mocking it all. But you know what? It's not that far off, right? And the one guy's in the cart, and he's like, I'm not dead yet. And he's like, you'll be stone cold in a minute or two, right? That That's not that far off. That's how people were dropping over So the king freaks out. His whole country's falling apart. People are dying everywhere. He's not sure about his tax revenue base or anything like that. He's got a war going on with France. But at least he bought his burial plot, right? So now he's got his plot, and he's thinking, yeah, if we die, we got a place to go. All right? This is just, you know, if you were that wealthy at the time, it's the kind of thing you did. So you're sitting there, you're wealthy, you're fat and happy, you're going to make it through the plague, you get through the plague. Now, think about the Hundred Years' War. It's still going at this point, but... England's got a decided upper hand. Uh, the, the deaths have stopped. Controls and pricing have been put in place. And they're making people stay put. The monasteries are becoming, and if you, you'll go forward in time a couple hundred years, you'll see the monasteries become the place for tenant farmers, right? That's, it's like it becomes a whole industry, and it's on its way there. So the king realizes, that, hey, this is an upcoming industry. And I can support it with other people's money. And his generosity is not generosity. And I'll explain to you why. 
His generosity is no more evident than when one of our illustrious Congress people pushes a bill through Congress that spends a whole bunch of money on whatever peon pet project they have because you can only be generous with that which you own and possess outright legally as your own money. The king has no money. Right? Oh, the king's rich. No, the king is wealthy, but he has no money of his own. Now, he does have lands and all. I guess there's some money tied up there. But the reality is the king lives off his subjects. The king lives off taxes. All that nice fancy shit, all those knights, all those soldiers, everything guards that protects him, his giant banquets every night, his people kissing his ass. All of that is paid for off the backs of the people. Remember, whenever you hear the term generosity in association with government, you are not being generous when you share someone else's surplus. That is not generosity. What it is, is redistribution of wealth. And by redistributing that particular block of wealth into a place that he already had partial ownership in, it's kind of double-dipping. And I'll bet you if we do a little bit of research down the road as this monastery grows and flourishes, that there's some favors to be returned and you know some kind of cooperation that happens the way it usually does when somebody with a lot of power and a lot of money that steals it from somebody else, if you understand what I'm saying, gives you something. There's almost always strings. I don't know what those strings are. Maybe Alex will find them as we go forward. But remember always... Thou art not being generous when thou givest away that which was not thou's in the first place. That's just my take by Jack Spirico. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into your first call for today's show. Hey, Jack. This is Low Watt Living. I just recorded my first podcast. And for all of us that are starting out or are even thinking about doing a podcast or that sort of thing, what advice could you give us? Because uh, you've been doing this for so long. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I mean, the words of the great knight, just do it. And do it a lot. And do it consistently. And do it over and over again and keep doing it. And don't worry about shit and do it, do it, do it, do it. That's what I would say. And I think it's the number one reason that most people that start blogs and podcasts and anything like that fail. Because you don't do enough, long enough, hard enough, fast enough initially. You keep wanting to make it better, so you keep dicking around, screwing around, and not doing it. I'm, and I'm not being personal with the caller. I'm being, I'm, I'm saying this is the case in, I would say, nine out of ten people that come to me and say, I'm trying to get this site off the ground, or this blog off the ground, or this podcast off the ground, or this YouTube channel off the ground, or whatever it is, and I'm struggling. When I look at the work output level, it is shit. It is shit, it is shit, it is shit. And I'm being deadly serious when I say that because if you actually want to succeed, you have to get past that. And this is, this is how I try to explain it to people as best I can. Let's say that one day you woke up out of the clear blue sky and said, I want to play professional golf. Now, I don't care if I can ever, you know, play and win the Masters, but I want to be able to actually play professional golf. And I've never really played golf before. I've hit the ball around a bit and all, and I seem to have somewhat of an inclination or talent towards golf. Maybe I've played a few games or something like that. And and I know that it's going to take work, but I want to play golf. And I want to play golf professionally. The only way 
that that's ever going to happen is for you to get out and play golf every day. And very, very soon you're going to have to start competing even though you suck. Because you're going to learn from the repetition and the competition. And you may get some coaching. That would be a great idea. On the Internet, there's lots of information to tell you everything you need to know about how to do things. right? And your coaching comes from the first few people on a podcast that listen to you and give you some feedback. So you don't really have to go find a coach. And you'll probably waste time and money if you try to do that in the, the, the podcast world. right? So you get out and you do it, just like you would if you were going to play golf. And... If you were trying to do this and you went to somebody and says, you know, I just want to be a professional golfer. That's what I want to be. I want to do this. I think it's worth doing. I think I have the talent, and I think I can get this to happen. And, and when somebody says, well, why aren't you just doing it? And you say, well, I'm not good enough yet. And they say, well, when's the last time you played golf? And you say, well, I played golf once, and I'm getting ready to play it again eventually, but I want to be ready to play it when I play it. If that person's time was valuable at all, if they were kind of the kind of person that could actually help you with your goal at all in becoming a professional golfer, they would tell you to not bother them, to go away, and to come back when you're ready to get off your ass and play golf every day. Okay? And it would be a completely reasonable thing, and nobody would get their, their shorts in a knot over it, and anybody that, that witnessed that or was part and parcel to that would say, well, that makes sense. If you want to be good enough to at least make a living from swinging a golf club, then you got to start swinging the freaking club. And we could take that into just about any activity that's sports-like. If you wanted to become good enough at skeet shooting or trap to compete and win money, and you said, well, I'm getting ready to go get out, but I'm not sure what kind of gun to get, and i got to figure out when I'm going to do this, and I haven't made time yet, and I don't know if I should be shooting at low targets or high targets first, and should I be shooting crossing pad, and I just don't know. So I, I, I shot once, and then, like, it's been like four months, and then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to shoot again, but I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing when I shoot, so i got to get really good by not doing it before I do it, so I can look good when I do it, because if somebody sees me do it and I'm not good, then I'll never be good. This is how people handle podcasting. Um, and even you, Low Watt Living, you've been talking about this for a year. You just did your first one. It ain't going to happen that way. And I know some people are thinking, God, Jack's being a jerk. I'm not. Because a jerk is someone who picks on you to pick on you, like a bully. I'm not picking on anybody here. You're asking me a question. What makes a person successful in the game of podcasting? Consistency is the number one thing. Consistency is the number one thing. The number two thing is consistency. And the number three thing is consistency. The number four thing is quality. And you know how you get to number four, to quality? Consistency, consistency, and consistency. If you're doing it frequently, you'll get good at it. When I started this show, I did the first couple episodes. Actually, I did like the first five episodes in two days. And it was shit. It was terrible. It was horrible. It was not good. The audio quality, even for the car, sucked. The content was eh. The delivery was eh. It was discombobulated. It was disjointed. But you know what? Just kept doing it. And I had people emailing me going, you're doing too many too fast. You're going to burn out on this. As I started to get better, people were like, I want this guy to stay around. I like what he's doing. But they were worried that by doing it at every day, they're like, you don't have to do this every day. You can do this once a week. No. And I'll tell you what. If I did it once a week, I would still be in corporate America, and I would have quit by now because I would have never made enough money at it 
to get really excited about it, to become really engaged with it, and to turn it into what it's become. The only reason TSP became what it became was, well, honestly, because of the community that built around it. But the community built around it because of consistency, consistency, and consistency. You know, tomorrow, well, tomorrow morning's Saturday, right? Everybody gets a day off. Saturday and Sunday, I'm off. But you know Monday, unless, you know, for, for example, my dog dies, right? Unless something like that happens, that's like the type of thing that preempts the show, or I take my occasional vacation, unless that happens, and it's usually announced in advance, there will be a show on Monday, there will be a show on Tuesday, there will be a show on Wednesday, there will be a show on Thursday, there will be a show on Friday. And you might not even like all the subjects, but you'll get enough of what you do like. And if I didn't do that, this show would be like 99% of podcasts, a part-time hobby that goes into oblivion. It has to have consistency. Now, could you do it weekly? Yes. And you know what you'll do? You'll go, if you do everything as well as I've done, five times slower. That's just the way it is. You will move five times slower if you do it as well as I did it. And that means that my first two to three months where I wasn't good, right? I wasn't good. I just wasn't. I was better than some, but I wasn't good. I wasn't polished. I didn't really have it down for those first 90 days, right? But that means your 90-day period, your 90-day ramp-up, if you start where I was at when I started, is going to take you a year. Do you get I mean, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. Actually, it's going to take you a year and three months. One year plus another quarter. Because you're doing one-fifth of the content. And the content is the practice. This is the real world. This is not like practice, 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 and then compete. This is you get out and the competition and the practice are at the same time. So you want to know what to do? Do it. And do it again. And do it again. And do it again. Figure out this is going to be a two-time-a-week show. This is going to be a three-time-a-week show. This is going to be an everyday show, whatever it's going to be. And when that happens, you get your ass up the next day that you need to do a show, and you do a show. And you don't sit down, I'm not sure what to do today. You turn the freaking recorder on, you start talking. You make something happen. And if you don't do that, you won't do it. And if you won't do it, you're not going to have success. And I know I sound harsh, and I know I sound tough, but this is business. Business is tough. And that's what it takes to make it. You can do it about anything. I believe you could actually make a podcast about Smurfs, in the words of Gary Vaynerchuk, and make a living from it. I believe you could. I believe there are so many people out there hungry for content about the things that they care about. You could do a comic book podcast. I bet you there is one. I bet you there's still opportunity to become successful in doing a book, a comic book podcast. I ain't going to do it. I don't care. Right? I'm sure you could do a podcast on things like the Kardashians and crap like that. I don't care. I'm not going to do that. But somebody cares. And the truth is, if you're consistent enough, long enough, to get a thousand people that love what you do, you have just created a full-time income for yourself. But if you have a thousand people that really love what you do, that are willing to spend one day's salary per year on you, one day's salary per year, then that means that you have three annual salaries in income potential that all you have to do is figure out how to ethically harvest. How do you get the money into your pocket from your fans and still continue to deliver greater value to them? It's that simple, but you've got to build it first. You build it 
with four things. Consistency, consistency, consistency. The fourth one's quality. The three consistencies lead you to the quality. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Aim from Iowa. I really want to learn more about first aid and how to fix wounds, but it can be really expensive and time-consuming to get into that. Is there any way that uh, I can get some sort of basic training without having to spend thousands of dollars or have a class from someone like Gary Davis? I think the answer is it depends. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the word you used was first aid. So first aid training is available for free from the American Red Cross. And, and let's, let's split this into two things here, right? We've got two concerns, time and expense, right? So we can only shortcut time so much. And honestly, when you go to a class with someone like Doc Bones and Nurse Amy or Carrie Davis on these, these medical procedures, that's what you're paying more money to do is to shortcut the time. You're going to like a boot camp. We're going to go straight away into these things, and you know what you're going to cover before you get there. You're going to cover it intensively. It's going to be military-like training, which means we're going to show it to you. We're going to demonstrate it to you. We're going to make you show it back to us. Then we're going to make you teach it to us. Then we're going to put you into a situation where we mock it up and you have to deliver it. And that methodology of training works very well as long as I can take the student and isolate them from other concerns in their life. And what I mean by that, for that to work, I have to take your cell phone away from you when you get to class. Right? And, and I tell you what, there's a lot of people, and if you go to a class like that, just shut it off. Right? You know? Just shut it off. Give people that might need you in an emergency the number to reach the school or the trainer themselves and say, do not call me unless someone's dying. You leave, otherwise, just leave me a message on my phone and I'll get back to you at the end of the day. And you have to be immersed for that type of training to work. So first of all, if you're going to spend the money to go to that type of training, understand that's what you're doing. The world must go away while you're in training. And if you find your mind drifting to, well, I have to worry about this thing with my company. and I, No, it has to stop immediately. You have to catch yourself and get back into the training. This is why it works for soldiers. And it works for soldiers perfectly because when you're in basic, you don't have a problem with that. You don't have time or the ability to think about anything else. If you look like you're thinking about somebody else, somebody's in your face and in your crap and making you think about what you need to think about. This is not the military, though, so you have to be your own drill sergeant in that type of training. So first of all, if you're going to spend the money on that type of training, go with that attitude. From the, from the time the day starts until the time the day ends, I am immersed and I have no time for anything else unless somebody's dying. Right. So that's that's first. Um, but on the time quotient, just like I talked about with the podcasting, if you want to be good at something, it comes through experience, and experience comes with time. And if you're not willing to dedicate the time, you're not going to be good at anything. So we all only have so much time. Now I'm not getting in your in your in your uh, getting on top of you here or anything like that because I am not a huge medically inclined person myself. I know basic first aid, basic treatment. Basic CPR, that type of thing, and that's I'm good with that. You know, I, I realize that I am never going to be a paramedic or anything like that. I only have so much time, and I put my time in the things that I value the most for my life. But if you want to value that, well, how much training could you get for how much money? Well, I was one. I always wondered 
If someone wanted to become an EMT, emergency medical technician, which, let's be honest, it's not the best-paying job in the world, and most people that go in and become EMTs, it's kind of an entry-level position, they get some experience, and they pay, and they spend more money and more time, and they become paramedics if they really want to make a career out of it, all right? But it is the entry thing, and it's a school that anybody can attend. You can just go. If you have any basic understanding, like I think the entry tests are like, you know, can you add, subtract, multiply, and divide? Can you read? I mean, if you can do that, you can get in. It's about any program. I pulled up UT Southwestern here, their EMT program in full, everything, testing, fingerprints, a uniform for your ride-alongs, every, the books, everything, $1,640. If I really wanted to become good at treating emergency trauma, this is what I would go take. I would make the time, I would straighten out the things in my life I need to do, and I would get this certification. And then if I ever ended up in a place without a job, a little bit of CEU and stuff like that, continuing education hours, I'd maintain this, and I'd have a skill that could immediately get me something that paid the bills. Because this is a career that's always got demand. There's always somebody hiring somebody that knows how to do this stuff. Because a lot of people just take the course and never actually get a job. Because a lot of people are doing what we're talking about. So, That's not thousands of dollars. That's a thousand and a half and some change. And yes, that's expensive. And I wouldn't just do that willy-nilly. But if you want, that's that's more advanced training than you're going to get in any of these boot camps. It really is to a degree, to a degree, because you know if you deal with with Bones and Amy, for instance, they're 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 taking a different approach to this. What, 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 what Amy would say is, well, you know, you're a paramedic or an EMT or something like that. Well, what you do is keep the person long enough, alive long enough to transport them to a hospital, tag the doctor's hand, you're it, bye, right? Where their training is more along the lines of there is nobody to hand them off to, how do I keep them alive? So you got to decide for yourself how far you want to go. I think there's a massive amount of resource out there, though, YouTube alone. If you just start Googling first aid techniques, trauma techniques, suturing techniques, you can teach yourself a lot of this stuff. But the reason I think that a person that's serious about it might want to consider the EMT route is part of the certification is in the field, actual ride-alongs. And there's no substitute for reality. No amount of fake blood or pig's feet can replace somebody who actually is in some sort of trauma that needs to be responded to, and if not responded to properly, could die. That cannot be replaced with typical training. It has to be out in the real world. And you learn not just then the mechanics, but the psychology. Because, you know, if you're learning how to suture a pig's foot, which, let's be honest, has limited... Functionality. I mean, it, it's it's like it's like learning to sh to, to uh, take self defense courses with a gun. You may need it someday, but eh, you know your odds of needing it are lower than probably your odds of needing to like know how to parallel park a car or how to change lanes effectively. You're going to do that often. So when when we we look at this though, no matter what we're doing with a mock up. The person that's playing the victim knows they're not going to die. They know they're they're not really in pain. Uh, the pig's foot is just a dead hunk of pig flesh that you're suturing. It doesn't move around. It doesn't freak out. It doesn't start screaming. It doesn't go, oh, that hurts. You didn't numb me enough or whatever. Or you're suturing me without Novocaine because you have to. It doesn't do any of those things. When you take 
like an EMT level course, you actually have to deal with the people that really are scared, that really are in pain, that maybe don't want you to help them because they're messed up on dope. Or maybe you got called in to provide medical attention to someone who was apprehended by the police and they know as soon as you're done with them and they're done at the hospital, they're going to jail. All of these things are the real-world dynamics that I don't think any classroom environment can fully replicate. Even in the military, when I took combat lifesaver training, and they did things like had people you know, soaked with fake blood, told one guy, you know, start screaming when they touch you, tell another guy, be unresponsive, and you didn't know what you were going to get into. And we had two instructors at each station. We took our final test. And the one is telling you things that are actually legitimate. When you check the pulse, there was no pulse, okay? Uh, patient is unresponsive, even though the guy's kind of laughing because you're being the other thing that's going on. He's telling you what the victim, the actual, actual feedback from the victim is, right? Uh, sometimes the victim's giving you verbal feedback or what have you. But, but the instructor that's grading you, he's sitting there giving you the things that a victim could not tell you, that you'd be able to tell. Like, he's cold to the touch. Well, this guy's dead. Right? And I'm in the middle of a, a life-saving situation in a battlefield. This guy's—he's been laying there a day. I mean, okay, he's done. Right? While he's doing that, the other instructor is a harassment man. Right? He's screaming in your face. You're doing it wrong. You're killing him. His mama's gonna find out he's dead because of you. Things like that. To try to simulate the stress, and they're setting up simulations around you know. And you know what? It still ain't real. And you know it ain't real. It's the best you can do. But it's not real. So I'd say if you want to take it to an advanced level, EMT route, if you want to go to the boot camp, clear your mind, clear your schedule. Um, and if you want to do it low cost, utilize the Red Cross. Um, there are you know places that you can take small, small, short day courses and things like that. Check out YouTube. Check out the Internet resources. But it all depends. How much do you really want and how much do you really think you need? Hi, Jack. Michael from Trafalgar, Indiana. Got a quick question about stevia. Planted stevia for the first time this year and uh, was kind of wondering how you go about uh, processing your stevia so that you can store it to sweeten drinks and uh, different things like that. Whether you, maybe you uh, process it in a blender or maybe actually run it through a juicer or some other some sort of apparatus like that. So I'm wondering about your comments on that and uh, as well as how you would uh, best store that. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Um, stevia extract is actually really easy to make. Um, all you need is some stevia plants and cut your leaves and kind of bruise them, crumble them in your hands and put them in a jar. Loose, you know, small jar. You don't need to make a lot of this stuff at once. So you don't really want to compact it too much. So just loosely packed into a jar. Cover it with a neutral alcohol like vodka would be best. And you can use cheap vodka for this. Right? And don't worry about the alcohol. Just don't. Please don't worry about the alcohol because the amount that you're going to use is going to be insignificant. Okay, I would not, and you're going to actually eventually remove some of it with heat. So we're going to take the vodka and we're going to just cover, right? So uh, enough vodka to cover to make as much as we're going to make. We're going to take that jar and we're going to put a lid on it, and like a ball jar, you know, a mason jar would be good for this, and set it somewhere dark and relatively cool. You don't want it really, really hot. Do not leave it in there for more than two days. And shake it a few times every couple days. Um, two days is about the limit. I'd do more like a day and a half. Because just like a lot of herbs, stevia has both the part you're looking for and things that can contribute some bitterness. 
All right. So if you make mint tea, for instance, you put the mints and the mint in the water, and you put it in. You can either use hot water, you can make a sun tea, you can make a cold infusion tea out of mint, and it tastes wonderful. You sweeten it with a little sugar or honey or stevia, and uh, man, it's just it's it's nice. But if you leave it too long, all of a sudden it starts to get really bitter. You make lemonade, same type of thing. You, you cut your lemons up, you stick them in your water, you let them soak in water for a while, and then you pour that off, and that's you know it's great. But you leave it in there for too long, and then some of the the bitter components in the pith and the and the rind start to come out into the water, and it tastes like crap. So you can do that with stevia too. So I would say more like about an 18 hour infusion in the alcohol, then strain the stevia away and using you know a cheesecloth or something like that, or just a, it's pretty big stuff. So a strainer will work. Put it in a saucepan. Now listen, don't boil it. Don't boil it. One more time. Don't boil it. Put it in a pot on the stove and gently heat it. Get it to steam but not boil. Okay? Bring the heat way down. Stir it and steam off of it but not boil. If it looks like it's going to boil, kill the heat. Shut it off. Pull the pot off. Do not boil it. You want to cook it down by just maybe 5-10% of volume. That's all you need to do is steam off. Even 5% is plenty. It's going to concentrate it, and it's going to evaporate the alcohol, okay, and leave more water and less alcohol. And then strain it again and put it in a bottle, and it'll keep for like a year in the refrigerator or more. If you wanted to, you could just strain it and use it like that. Uh, it'll probably work. You might want to use a little bit more leaf, and you're going to have to play with it till you get the amounts to give you the, the thing that you want. But let's say that you ended up with an extract that's very similar to what you buy in a store. I don't know about you, but to me, if I use it in a coffee, a store-bought stevia extract, one tiny drop is as much as I can handle before it's too sweet for a full cup of coffee. Um, if you needed three drops... And if it was full-strength, 80-proof vodka, there is, unless you're allergic to alcohol or something like that, the effects on the mind and the body at that amount are insignificant. I wouldn't prevent a child from using that. Um, I mean, <laughs> look at it this way. Think about, yeah, you can get a little bit of a, of a buzz going, I guess, from a, from a shot of vodka, one shot, an ounce and a half. Do you know how long an ounce and a half of stevia extract lasts? It's insane. How many drops does it take to make an ounce and a half? So I know some people get weird about alcohol and all, but and I understand people that don't drink. That makes perfect sense to me why some people wouldn't drink. But when you get into things like this, it's the best thing for it. You can do it with a water infusion, but it will work so much better. And if you do it with just a straight alcohol infusion, if you don't cook it down, if you don't worry about the alcohol content, if you just use enough of it to get what you want out of it, it's pretty much shelf-stable forever. I mean, it really is if you think about it. In fact, I would tell you that I would probably, to increase the efficacy of it and the stability of it, I would use 100-proof vodka because it's still insignificant. It's so insignificant because you're talking now a drop to sweeten a cup of coffee. And if it's a drop of 100 proof vodka, that means it's 50% alcohol, 
which means you have 50% of a drop. You have a half of the drop of actual alcohol. A beer has about an ounce and a quarter to an ounce and a half of alcohol to a full beer. So you'd probably get more alcohol by sniffing a beer bottle for a while than from that one drop. That's not true, but you get my point. Okay, so that's how I would do it. That And we don't use enough sweetening that we are messing with our own stevia. Um, I didn't even plan any this year. I can tell you that we I have used it before, like to sweeten mint tea, and I should have planted some for that. And the way I've done that is just when you put your mint leaves in the jar and, and infuse your water, you just take like two stevia leaves and just put them in there with it. And but that's only good while it's fresh, but man... That's that's all you got to do there. So if you're doing like a chamomile tea or something like that, you can just use an actual leaf or two of stevia. And remember this about stevia or honey or any sugar or any sweetener or salt, right? You can always add more. It is very difficult to take it back out. All you can do is increase the volume somehow, add water, try to dilute it. So go light initially, and if you need more, add more. All right, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris. Uh, I had a question about food forests. I was wondering your opinion. Um, um, in, I'm going to be in an apartment for like the next year, and I'm hoping to get my own place in about a year. And I was wondering your thought on whether or not you thought it was worth it to start uh, all my trees from seed to save the money but invest the time. Um, I know it's going to be a little more work. I was just wondering what your thought was, thought, what your thought was on that. Uh, appreciate all the work you do. Um, hope you can help me out. Thanks. Um, you could. Let me be honest with you, though. Babysitting a whole bunch of trees in an apartment, shepherding them through the move, only a year of growth on them, Eh, you're not going to, I mean, you're going to be planting some pretty small seedlings at that point. And if you were going to buy seedlings, you could get a lot of different trees that do reproduce some seed well, as seedlings pretty cheap, 3 or $4 a tree. But let's look at some economics here when it comes to, the, because, you know, your situation is unique. And I always try to answer these questions as best I can to be as like specific to your needs, but yet as encompassing to many people as possible. I think a lot of people look at starting trees as a good way to save money. And trust me, as someone that's bought a lot of trees in the last year, um, they can be expensive. When you lose one or two or four, you don't feel good about it. Uh, and when you have some out there that don't look like they look like, well, maybe they'll make it. And you're just thinking July and August are going to suck. Hope this tree makes it through the, to the fall because if it does, it's going to be good next year. But I'm not sure. All of that kind of plays into the economics. And you're thinking there's money tied up in these trees. And... There is money in the trees. But what I've seen is my biggest hole in my planting is all of the little shrubs, the perennial herbs, etc. And boy, did those add up faster than the trees. Because let's think about it this way. Let's say you were going to put in 20 trees. That's a pretty sizable installation, 20 trees. Let's say your 20 trees were expensive trees. They average $30 a tree. Well, most trees really do average about $15 to $25. But let's just say we're going high-end, $30 a tree. You know, we're putting in some $39 jujubes and some things like that. So we get an average cost per tree 
ACT, right? <laughs> We're making up accounting terms now, right? ACT. Instead of an ARPU, we have an ACT. Um, of 30 bucks times 20, $600 in trees. There's no doubt that's a significant investment, right? But let's say for each tree, we're going to put in 20 additional plantings, all right, of herbs, bushes, things like that, tubers, ground cover, 20 little perennial items to one big perennial item. If they all cost five bucks, they all cost five bucks, I'm into the tree for $30, Right? I'm into the perennials for a hundred. Now when I multiply that hundred times twenty, I'm into it for two thousand dollars in the perennials. I learned this from Dave Jackie. He's like the perennials are what you think are cheap, but they get you. Because when you start looking at okay, I want a comfrey and a and a comfrey crown's five bucks, so that goes there. And uh, we're going to put in, uh, um, you know, because I'm going low when I say five bucks, by the way, average. Because watch, watch it add up. So I'm going to put the comfrey in there. That's five dollars for a comfrey head. And uh, let's see, I'm going to want to put in uh, some valerian. So five bucks, two roots, two valerian roots. Okay, so there's ten bucks. So now I'm at, you know, I'm at fifteen dollars. So I'm at fifteen bucks there. And uh, you know what? I'd like to put in uh, a wolfberry with that guild. So uh, We'll add on another another twenty bucks for the wolfberry. Okay, so now I'm at thirty five bucks, and uh, boy, I got a lot of space yet to gild out this tree. Uh, let's throw an autumn olive in there. I can get one of those, you know, if I'm buying them in quantity cheap. So I, I'll get that for uh, for for three fifty. We'll say. So now I'm at like twenty three fifty to support this tree, um, but I'm not done yet, you know, because well. Let's put a couple of blackberries in this guild. Blackberries would be great for this guild, right? So, uh, two blackberries, uh, $24, uh, 12 bucks a piece, right? Okay, so now, now I've got, uh, and I, I've lost track of what I was doing there. Um, uh, I'd be at about $62. Let's just call it $62. And, uh, so now I've got that going on, but, wow, I've, you know, really got a lot more to do here. There's a lot more to do, so, uh, maybe I'll put in, uh, Uh, what do you call it? A uh, mashua tuber. Put a mashua tuber in there. There's another five bucks, and so now I'm up like sixty-seven dollars. Um, yeah, maybe we'll uh, we'll go in and put a few strawberry plants for ground cover in. Let's say uh, five of those, so fifteen dollars, right? I mean, you see how it just starts like these are the things that add up. So if I was going to be in an apartment, had a very sizable balcony, I had the space for it. And I was going to be getting things ready for my eventual installation of a small food forest. I would do things like I'd get a great big pot. And I'd get a couple little comfrey roots. And I'd, I'd start four or five comfrey in that one pot. It's going to be crowded. It's going to be jammed up. But you know what? A year from now, there's going to be about $100 worth of cuttings in that pot. That you can, you can, you can keep doing that with and replicating or put them straight into the ground or whatever you want to do. Um, I might look at getting myself some primocane blackberries and you take your first year canes and you bend them over and bury the tips. Okay. And then you cut them in half and pull the root up out and you plant two for each cane. You see how that works? Because each cane now has two roots, one on each side. So I might do that and I can end up, you know, creating a ton 
a ton of stuff off of that. Get yourself one big pot. Get yourself uh, five, six, seven strawberries, runner strawberries. And when they start putting sisters out, capture your sisters. And you can do that with little pots. So you train your runner down into your little pot, stick the sister into the little pot. It'll root out. You can probably make a hundred strawberries like that. Right? So that's what they call them. They call them sisters. I'm not saying don't do it at all with trees. I'm just saying, like, don't think that the trees are really the expensive part. The bushes, the shrubs, and the perennial herbs are the expensive part. And if you start looking at herbs that reproduce, perennials of any kind that reproduce from division and reproduce from cuttings easily, either or, those are probably your biggest bang for the buck in your situation. And it's, it's a good thing for people to think about who even are already there and are start thinking, okay, I got it, 10 acres. Half an acre food forest. Expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. You, you, you get a heart attack. You just start, you go into one of these, you know, like Rain Tree Nursery, uh, websites or One Green World or Stark Brothers and just start adding it up. Just, just start adding, you ain't gotta buy it, right? Just start plunking it in your cart. Just start kaplunk, 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 kaplunk. Ugh. Right? You get a heart attack when you look at it. And then you go draw that into your design and you go, I haven't made a dent on a half an acre yet. So, the trees, again, really aren't that expensive. And there's a lot of trees that you can do, if, depending on your climate. Like, if you're in a climate for figs, figs are, like, one of the easiest plants to replicate with cuttings. But fig trees run $12 to $30 for, for a nicely started small fig tree. So you learn, how to, you learn how to do those from cuttings. So also be thinking, like, that's another plant that, like, I think would be, a, if you're going to do a tree, it, if figs do well where you are. What a great thing to put in a big pot. Big old fig. Because I'll tell you the other thing, too. When you go to move, I hope you own a pickup truck, and I hope you're not moving from one state to the other like I did. I hope you're moving, like, across town or something. You have to take, if you have five or six big pots, you have to take an entire trip just for your plants. So think about that, too. Now, if you're already there, figs, great. If you're in a climate where you can grow currants, currants are one of the easiest things to propagate from cuttings. You pretty much take a current, prune it off, stick it in moist soil, keep it moist and shaded, and it will root. Probably 8 out of 10 times doing nothing else. So currants we can propagate to a large degree. Gooseberries, yeah, not as, not as easy, but damn close. Mulberry. Mulberry. Get one of these dwarf mulberries. I have these dwarf mulberries. Awesome. You take a cutting, you stick it in the ground, it looks like crap, you keep it wet, it looks like crap, you keep it wet, it looks like crap. One green leaf pops up on it, one new green leaf pops up on it. Next thing you know, dun, 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 you got a plant just going. Mulberry is another tree that I think makes a lot of sense if you're going to do something in a pot, a small dwarf mulberry type of thing, because you can propagate from cuttings. Because if you're just going to do it for one tree, by the time you buy the pot, by the time you grow the tree, by the time you deal with it all, now, if you're going to do seedlings, like in the containers, like I've done with the apples, I can see that, but then I would be thinking more along the lines of support species, right? Now, if you know for a fact that you're going to be going somewhere where it will be easy to plant small seedling trees, and you're going to have an area that you're just going to plant, I could see starting 400 trees from seed, and a year later having them be like little small plants, 
and sticking those in the ground, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But are you? Because this is what happens. You just think, I'll just plant. I've got so much land now, I'll just plant the crap out of everything. And you're like, I don't know where to put all of these. I'm not sure. Now, if you had a nice big square property, you're in an area with decent rainfall. You don't need to do a lot of earthworks to keep these things alive. And let's face it, you've been pulling you know, pits out of peaches and uh, pits out of uh, apples and things like that. And into this, you know, you've got more money in the containers than you have in the plants. If you plant 400 and 200 live and 200 die, you're ahead. That I that I get. The, let's talk about a little bit about the advantages of doing trees from seed. The biggest advantage of doing a tree from seed exists if the seed is planted into the ground where the tree grows. Because then the root system is extremely hardy. And there's a beautifully easy way to mitigate losses and increase your effectiveness when doing this. Seeds are cheap for trees. Plant six in a circle, way too close together for all those trees to survive, and close enough together that any one of them growing to maturity would make you happy. And if all six happen to grow in a nice little thing and start racing each other, over time, start killing trees. Start killing trees. So you got six coming up. All six come up. You had a home run in this little cluster. They get up to about a foot tall, two foot tall-ish. Okay, yeah, they're starting to crowd each other a little bit. Kill two of them. And you won't kill them. They'll coppice. Cut them to the ground. They'll start coming back up. Right? Keep an eye on them. Okay, now I've got trees that are about three foot, four foot tall. Okay, I'm going to kill those coppice once again. Cut them to the ground. I'm going to cut this one out and this one just leave two. And eventually I pick a winner. And I just keep cutting everybody else to the ground. And they die. And all that root system they've put down now becomes available space for the winner. And I've mitigated because I only need one to survive. So if five out of six just die... I still have a tree. So that's that's a way to handle that in the ground. I wouldn't do too much of this unless, again, you're very clear on what you're growing, why you're growing it, and the type of land you're going to have. Because I think we have a propensity to think, wow, I'll just be able to plant all kinds of stuff on an acre. And you will, but everything you plant, unless you're in a really great climate with lots of rain spread out evenly over the year and no real heavy dry period all, all of that needs support. And a lot of times that support is in the form of swales and oogles, sheet mulching and things like that. None of it's hard, but it all takes time. So that's kind of my thought process there. Uh, next up, we've got a question for Stephen Harris. So I'm just going to introduce that now and say so I'm going to play the question and then we'll put Stephen's answer straight after it. And then I'll be back and we'll take another question for, for me. Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego again. This week I have a question for Stephen Harris. Uh, Steve, um, I want to build a bug-out trailer, and I want to incorporate one of your battery backup systems into the trailer. My initial idea is to keep the trailer plugged into an outlet when it's parked in the driveway, but uh, when I have to tow it and take off with it, uh, I was hoping I could use the alternator on the truck to keep the batteries charged. My question is, is this feasible, or is the cable going to have to be so big it doesn't work? Um, I ask because at my work, we have some 25-ton equipment trailers, and they all have little batteries uh, in case, you know, uh, you have a breakaway situation to act activate the brakes on the trailer, and the wire keeping those batteries charged is no bigger than about 12-gauge. Um uh, other options I was thinking of is uh, 
I could put a photovoltaic on the roof of the trailer, but I know you don't like that. Uh, the other thought I had was maybe uh, putting a generator in the trailer. I thought originally that would be redundant, but then again, two is one, one is none. You know, if I have the generator, I can use the generator on off times to keep the batteries charged. Anyway, I would love to hear your thought on the subject. Thanks, uh, Stephen, and thanks again, Jack. Jeff and San Diego, thank you very much for your question. Hey, I gotta address something up here first. It's just philosophy. I personally hate bug out bags and the entire mentality that goes with them. You're leaving everything you got to go to some place that doesn't have much when you got all your resources at home. I see bugging out only in case of forest fire, brush fire, flood warning, tsunami, hurricane, a few other isolated incidents. Some inner city people might want to leave. Now, I love the idea of get home bags that you keep in your car. That is the right mentality. I'm trying to go to where there are resources. Now, for bugging out, you don't want a bag if you're going to bug out. You know, Again, it's not the mentality of the bag. You want totes. You want boxes of stuff to load into your car. A bag is too few items for leaving. You want stuff. With that said, I love the idea of a bug-out trailer. Now you can carry water. Now you can carry fuel. Now you can really carry a month of food. Now you can carry shelter with you, tents, tarps. Heck, the trailer can be even your shelter. I love the idea of a bug-out trailer for just hook up and go. Keeping this ready, hooking up and moving is great. And the idea of putting a battery bank in it along with your generator is an even better idea. Now, on charging the trailer as you drive, the cable we use to charge the batteries in the back of the pickup truck is 6-gauge wire we buy from Home Depot. If it goes the length of my truck, which is over you know 25 feet of wire because it snakes around then goes up, it can easily go the length of your, your truck and your trailer. Uh, we use 6-gauge wire because it can ca- we're carrying up to 30 amps through it, maximum. The wiring a 25-ton work trailer is just an amp or so. That's why the, it's 12-gauge and so much smaller. Now, when parked at home, keep it charged up with an extension cord from the house. Uh, now, on how to build such a battery bank, go to solar1234.com and listen to the Solar Chicken Coop episode I did for Jack. I tell you step-by-step step how to build and size and scale any battery and solar bank that you could possibly want. You can listen to it with one tap. Now, make sure you have some of those 24-7, I'm working fine, indicators or lights on the outside of your trailer, as I explained and mentioned in the Solar Chicken Coop episode. This way, you'll always know at a glance that your trailer is ready to go with power. There hasn't been a failure, like it overheated because you're in California and the sun baked it or something. Now, as far as solar goes, I just might want to do it. Yeah, Steve Harris said he just might want solar on a bug-out trailer. Uh, I'd mount it on top so I can angle it in any direction I want, uh, so I can angle it up towards the sun. I'd even put up to 400 watts of solar panels up there, 100 watts minimum. If you go more than 100 watts, you're going to want an MPPT charger. That's a multi-point power tracking charger. Then you don't have to have the house charge it. You can just park it and have your indicators telling you that yeah i'm ready and i'm charged up on the outside and when you need it you can go and once you get there 
you'll have maintenance energy from the solar panels. You got something that is going to be giving you silent, no signature, except for the visual signature. Hey, solar panels are magnets saying, hey, I'm here, I got power and stuff, and you don't. But it's good to have a silent signature, and so you can have enough energy for your cell phone, for your iPod, iPad, so the kids can watch movies on it, uh, for your radio and TV that you're going to want to have with you, a small TV, of course. So, yeah, Steve Harris is saying he likes the idea of solar panels on a bug-out trailer because, again, I only advocate solar if you're prepared, if you have months worth of food, you know, three, four, six months worth of food. I do advocate solar in those uh, those situations. And I'm advocating solar on a bug-out trailer with, let's say, four weeks of food on it and water and or the ability to get and purify and store water. So, hey, guys, uh, that's it for this time. I've updated Stephen1234.com. That's where I have all the stuff I've done with Jack, and I have all my videos and other audio teachings and free preparedness classes, uh, Stephen1234.com, and I've put up a bunch of testimonials. You guys have been writing me for the past several years, and this is all stuff TSPers have written me. They've done it. It's worked for them. True stories. It'll work for you. Please start getting prepared or advancing your preparedness. Now's the time to do it. Take a look at Stephen1234.com, and thank you very much. Please call the Think Line and call in some more questions, and I'll get them answered for you. Goodbye. Uh, before I take the next question, I, I've got to say a few things, because I, I, I actually really love this call. I love Stephen's response to it. But one day I'd like to get Steve on the air with, with no prep and just have us talk about bug outs and bug out bags and Try to help Steve understand the need to be prepared to bug out, not just with a trailer, because not everybody's ready to bug out with a trailer, and what the purpose of a dadgum bug out bag is, and how there are many things, and it's amazing to me now that at least he's like, well, there's this, this, and this, because when he said, why would you bug out, I told him a year ago, this, 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 oh, okay, well, yeah, you got, look, there's, there are things that go on, and Steve, you, you've been a reserve, uh, law enforcement officer, you know this, where people just show up at your house one day and say, get your shit and get out. But I don't think I need to leave. Get your shit and get out. Mandatory evacuation. And you never know when that's going to be. There's also times where you didn't leave your house, but your house left you. They're called tornadoes. We have lots of them. And sometimes people, after the tornado passes, they look around themselves and and the house is not there, and fortunately they're alive and not dead. You'd be leaving then too. right? And having even just a good 72-hour kit bag that if I have to go somewhere provides me what I need to be comfortable while I'm there, not so I can put it on my back, hike across the, the country and, and fight a war with the Illuminati, but let's say that I'm whipped out of my house for whatever reason, for whatever reason uh, it, it goes on, I can't just go to my my relatives or something, and I'm going to be gone for three or four days and I'm going to come back. There's a, a chemical leak at a plant near my house, because that never, oh wait, that happened to me once when I was a kid. They came and threw us out. There was a sewer treatment plant with a leak, and they came, get your shit and get out. But we, you've got five minutes to be out of here, or we're going to remove you. For your health and safety, you need to leave now. 
So, yeah, you can go ha hang out with a relative. But even, even in that catch situation, having that prep. So I, I like that. The bug out trailer. I almost think this would be another cool show to do with Steve. Get Steve and I on the air. No prep time. None at all. Just, just two guys talking about it using our minds. Because Steve's got this great mind. What would we do to build the ultimate bug out trailer? A bot is what we would call it. The bot. How could we do it for the least amount of cost and maximum amount of utility, not just for bugging out, but for camping, but for comfort, but for I'm going to go run a business thing somewhere and this is going to be like my remote support point. How could we do that in a modular configurable way so that, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go take this on this uh, expo I'm going to do of all my stuff. So some of the stuff that I normally keep as bug out gear is going to come out and this stuff's going to go back in, that type of thing. I think it could be really awesome. The, the solar system, dead on, agree with Steve. I think about 400 watts would be awesome, killer. The signature of the solar panels. If I was going to do this, just kind of cheating, I'll go a little bit ahead here. I would want to do this with a closed trailer. I would want to do this with like a closed-in trailer that looks like a utility trailer. You know, it looks something like a little bit nicer than what you rent from U-Haul. Right, they, they close a box trailer, closes up, tall enough to stand in, and and you know at least 12 feet long, maybe 16 feet long, something in that range. It's not a big trailer really, and those trailers are high enough that the roof line is above line of sight. I would mount the panels to the roof flat. Yes, they can t with a way where they can tilt up to make maximum use of the sun, but going down the road or being anywhere when they're laid flat and strapped down that if you were looking, you'd never see them. You'd never even know they were there. You'd have to get up elevated to look down to see them. That wouldn't be hard to pull off at all. With a very flat profile like that, you just really wouldn't see them up there. And plenty of room on a trailer that size for 400 watts of solar. Um, the generator, I'd say you know, an EU2000 or EU1000, either one would be able to top off batteries. Four, probably GC2s would be the way to go with that. You know, So you got a pretty good uh, battery life expectancy there. It could be killer. It could be, it's, it's something I've always bounced around and never done, but I think it would be neat if Steve and I just went through it. Just like, okay, what would we do? And like, we could actually be, while we're talking on the air, pulling crap up on Amazon, finding stuff. If you'd like to see a sh or hear a show like that, let me know. Now let's go ahead and take a, uh, another call. Hey, Jack, this is Caleb from Southern Missouri. Do you believe that we all evolved from a common ancestor? Just interested to, what your release is on that. Love the show. Big fan. Keep up what you're doing. Thanks. Bye. I almost decided not to do this because it seems like there's this desire always, especially in the preparedness realm, to drag things into the old debate about evolution and God and this religion and that because in the end you end up in a religious discussion when you when you when you when you have a discussion about evolution because people of the creationist belief always seem to have an issue with any discussion on evolution and to be fair people that believe the theory because it's what it is it's a theory of evolution um, always seem to have a problem with anybody discussing creationism. Let's start out with what I believe about just the origin of life on Earth. In fact, I would say the origin of the universe. I believe in intelligent design, uh, which does not preclude the evolutionary process at all, which is why I'm willing to believe in it. 
Okay, if you if you want me to believe that one day God got bored, flipped a light switch, turned everything on, and, and started making stuff out of dirt, and a literal interpretation of the Genesis story, you can believe that, but I'm not going to. All right, I'm not going to put you down for believing that, but I'm not getting in the bus with you. Right, I'm in my bus, you're in your bus, we're both happy, and that's how I like to keep religious discussions. I do not have any desire to convert you from your belief, whatever it may be, to my belief, which uh, the only word that describes what I believe is deism. I am a deist. I believe in a creator, an intelligence, a greater power, a higher power. Right. So um, I do not believe in organized religion at all, and I will not be drug into it. And you want to stay there? That's great. Churches do some wonderful things. Temples do some wonderful things. I have no desire to pull anybody out. And I will not engage in this discussion from a standpoint of who's right and wrong about religion. Because it's just, it's, it's not really important to me. Um, so I believe that the existence of all that is, is so perfect. It is so well designed. It is so well timed. It is, it is a fluidity of music. It is a symphony. When you actually look at the universe and what we're beginning to understand about other dimensions and, and multiverses, Uh, as we look at cosmic theory, as we look at all of these things, I see it like, like music. And, and I don't believe that nature accidentally creates music. I think music is proof of an architect. So somewhere, something, somehow, even if the universe itself is the creation, and the creation and the creator are just the same thing, that's, I'm okay with however it works out. I don't think God sits on a throne with a trident and looks like King Neptune, which is what the pictures kind of look like. All right, I don't believe that. It's okay if you want to see see God that way. I'm not here to tell you, but I don't. I don't. Now, that then leads us to okay. Well, we have this intelligent design. The universe was created. Boom, a big bang. Or um, there's actually a very similar way that the big bang is described to what science thinks. If you look into Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. That, that describes this this concentration of energy in one place and this outflow, this fracturing. Um, however that happens, fine, it happened. Now we have this this ball that is Earth that, yes, is billions of years old. Whether I, I'm sorry, everything that we can look at and test and know and use our logic and reason says, yes, Earth is billions of years old. Okay, and God didn't make it look that way to test my faith. I don't, I don't buy that either. But again, if you do, that's I'm trying to explain to you where I'm coming from, not what you should believe. That's what I believe. So at some point, we have to have a genesis of life here, a spark of life. My personal guess, and it's a guess, and I think that's anybody that's being honest has to say now you're guessing, is that whatever the infusion of life that came from creation itself was part of the creation of the universe, and it was there. And that seed led forward through the evolutionary process to all life that we see. But I don't think that necessitates a single starting point. That there could have been multiple starting points and multiple lineages and multiple ancestries. I think the concept that we all started out as one specific type of a virus or protoplasm or, or one specific chain of amino acids... And that all life as we know it goes back to that one first blob. And there are no other blobs that, that blobbed out to blobbiness is probably not right. It doesn't make sense. If it could happen once, it probably would have happened multiple times in multiple different ways. Which to me is a much better explanation of the totality of diversity of life on the planet. 
Now, so then we go to humans. So do humans all go back to one specific common ancestor? One point at which, if we trace back human DNA, we all collide. And so, therefore, we go back to one blob. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. And I, I don't know that we'll ever know. As, as living, walking, sentient beings on the planet in this realm. There may be something in the afterworld that you would call it. You might call it heaven. I might call it the next level. Whatever it may be. Where we get to know that. Um, DNA may come out, you know, enough work on the human genome projects and things like that to actually try to give you an answer, but not everybody's going to agree. Nobody's ever going to all agree about this. And I don't think it's that important. I think it's interesting. I think the, the quest for the answer can lead to a lot of miraculous scientific innovation, but I don't think it really changes anything for me if I know that we all came from one particular line or that we came from multiple lines, I, it, it doesn't really matter to me. I would think that one makes sense, though. And I'll, I'll tell you why one makes sense, because we are so similar. The human being is dramatically identical to each other. There is no disparagement between the races as long as the blood types are the same for things like exchanging organs. Right? As long as, as long as there's enough of a genetic similarity, it's not like a black person can't give a liver to a white person. Right? It's, it, it's, it's not like we're trying to use the parts of a pig and a cow or something like that. We are dramatically the same. If you strip off our exterior, our interiors, everything beneath the skin, is the same. And that would seem to indicate that we go back to one common lineage or line at some point if we go far enough back. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe there wasn't some sort of point where that split and it split prior to what we would recognize as modern humans. And that we may have come forward through different types of missing links. If that makes sense, right? So that everybody wants to, where's the missing link? The one transformation, there might be multiples of those from multiple different bifurcations throughout this timestamp. Does it really matter? I don't think so. I don't think so. The big questions about religion, everybody always wants to make, well, if there wasn't this about religion, there wouldn't be wars about this, or if everybody believed the same faith, then nobody would fight about that, or, you know, and all of this political turmoil. Yeah, but that's not going to change over this. I don't think it's a modern survival topic. I think it's an interesting scientific question. But I'm actually more interested in rather than the origin of life as we know it, the origin of everything. The beginning of what we call the universe. That's actually a much more deep question to me. Because once we know that, it is, then there's your common ancestor. Right? Your common ancestor isn't a living being, it's a creation. So... There you go. I don't know if that'll make anybody happy. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm not sure if I should have answered that question. And if I've offended you because you're a person of faith at this point, you need to go back and work on your faith. Because I've said nothing to individually attack anybody that believes anything. Me telling you what I believe is not 
the same as me telling you not to believe what you believe. And if we want the right to free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, then you cannot be pissed off that someone says, I don't agree with you. I don't believe what you believe, and this is what I believe. You can say, I don't agree with you, and I think you're wrong, and here's why, but you can't be upset over it. And you can't expect people to walk on eggshells around you because you believe a certain thing. Or you don't believe a certain thing. Like, there's just as many butthurt atheists out there as there are butthurt Christians out there. Like, they can't tolerate someone else having faith in something. It's not your bill. I don't think they should use public resources. Well, I don't think a lot of public resources should be used for things like stealing my money, but it is what it is. And it's not, that's not hurting you. Trust me. Of all the things the government's doing to hurt you, somebody running their Easter pageant at a city center is not one of them. That's not hurting you. That's not hurting you at all. And, and those people bug me a lot more than the people that try to save my soul. I'm just saying. Those people really are people that have an internal personal problem. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My question is about repurposing buckets. I've noticed that I'm getting a collection of buckets that the uh, chlorine tablets for our pool come in, and uh, we're like dead broke right now, so I'm trying to make use of everything I can. Um, and my thought on this was to possibly use those for doing fodder, but I wasn't sure if having had the chlorine tabs... Even if I rinse them out real good, if they say that would be a problem. Just wanted to get your opinion on it. This is uh, Tucor in Tennessee. Thanks for the show. Bye. You know, my initial thought was, yeah, I don't know. You know, like chlorine in, in concentrated amounts is some pretty toxic crap. It really is. It's. And, and if you, when you open one of those buckets, it just hits you in the face, the smell of it, and it'll burn your eyes. And when I was talking earlier about being thrown out of our apartment when I was a kid, um, the reason was because of chlorine gas. That's why they threw us out. We were gone for two days, by the way. Um, so chlorine is, is not, not friendly to the human being, right? But it's actually this miraculous thing. It really is when you think about the, the lives probably saved because of chlorine. I don't like that it's in our water, okay, but I understand why. So there's fluoride put in our water, which is from toxic chemical residues from industrial applications that if you put the stuff into the earth, just dumped it on the earth, the EPA would put you in jail, so so far in jail you'd be underneath it. But you're allowed to put it in our water and we drink it. And I don't understand why we do that. That's not necessary. If I want to protect my teeth with fluoride, I can choose to do that or choose not to. It's it, it's not okay, and it's not acceptable, and it shouldn't be done. That's how I feel about that. Chlorine saves lives in water. Chlorine is the most inexpensive, effective way to maintain a swimming pool. It is not the best way. There are other options. But it is very inexpensive and very effective and easy to use and do. And it works great for that. So I think chlorine is this like two-edged sword that does wonderful things for society and can kill you. All right. So when I first heard this question and thinking about how concentrated that shit is in there, I'm like, I don't know. But then here's the other thing about chlorine. It, it off-gasses so rapidly and so effectively, I don't think it would actually be a problem. I think that it, what I would do is I would scrub that thing out. You know, just water, water and warm water and scrub it out really, really good. I would get it. And I would wear gloves because some of the residues in there, you might get some, you know, just a little bit of it. 
in one spot concentrated can burn your skin. So I'd wear gloves. I'd clean it out real good. <clears throat> I would set it out in the sun, open. And uh, I would just let it bake in the sun for a couple days. And then once that was done, I'd give it a sniff test. And if I could smell chlorine residue, I would do it again. But I'm willing to bet that if you do that twice and you give it a good week in the sun to off-gas, it's probably easier to get rid of than pickle stink or icing smell. Uh, and a lot of people are reusing buckets like that. So I wouldn't re refrain from using it. Uh, I looked up on AR-15's Prepper Forum. I found a thread there about this. And some people are doing exactly what I just said, and they're using to store food in. I, uh, it, 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 to me, it's different because you're sealing the bucket now. Right? I would try to use these mostly for things that are not food. Right? So I would use them for things like, you know, parts, mechanical parts, things like that. Stuff, uh, bullets, you know, would be fine, things like that. If I was going to do it for fodder, I'd be less concerned. Uh, not just because the birds are eating instead of me, but because it's not closed. So I think a lot of times we can get a lot of off-gassing out of something. And it doesn't smell bad, seems like it's pretty good, but if we close it up and seal it and contain the little tiny remnant that's coming out of it, and we contain it long enough, it builds up again. So a way of explaining this is when I bought my truck uh, that I have now, my F-350, I went out and looked at all bunch of different trucks. This truck was a great price. It was a great truck. It was solid, rock solid, and it wasn't like a loaded vehicle, so I wasn't paying for a lot of stuff I didn't need. I wanted a truck. I didn't want a truck. So I, I open it up, I look in it, it's clean, it's been vacuumed. I mean, this thing, the company I bought it from, they like steam clean every inch of the vehicle. The, anything that was wrong had been touched up, gone over, head to tails. And when I opened the vehicle, it smelled wonderful. And I went, nice. Made a cash offer, guy accepted, paid cash for the truck, drove it home. Drove it around for a couple days, Enjoying my new vehicle, right? No problems, no bad smells. And then, like, for a week, it sat in the driveway with the windows closed in the Texas sun. I opened it up, and it reeked like cigarettes. Because what had happened is the guy that owned it before me was a smoker. He had smoked in it. His stink from his smokes, and you, if you smoke, you stink. Sorry. I'm sorry, you do. You stink. And, you, and if you smoke, you don't know how bad you stink. Right? There's a little public service announcement. You know those electronic cigarettes? Yeah, they're bad for you too. They're not as bad, and you don't stink. Okay, so I would I would highly advise you to look those up. And I'll tell you what I've heard from every single person that's using one now that used to be a smoker. I didn't know how bad I smelled. I didn't know how much I offended people. I didn't know how bad it was to breathe somebody else's stink in until oh I don't know. I didn't do it for four months, and then I ended up somewhere where someone was smoking. Because you don't, you don't sense it. And I think you should have a right to smoke. I have no problem with you smoking. But I should have a right not to breathe your stink. So that's, you know, with restaurants that still let it happen and all. It's just, ugh. Anyway. Um, anyway, like so this, this cigarette stink comes out of the truck. So I took my happy ass down to Walmart, and I bought two giant bottles of Febreze. And I saturated every inch of that truck and left the windows open until I had to shut them because it rained. And the stink was gone. And then we went into like the fall. It wasn't that hot. I was using the truck a lot. It was open a lot. It was open and closed and open and closed. And then we had a warm spell in the middle of that first fall. 
And I ended up not needing to use the vehicle much because I, you know, I only drove it when I needed it. It's a big truck. It uses a lot of fuel. And so it sat for a couple weeks in the sun, and I opened it up, and the stink had returned. So back to Walmart, two big bottles of Febreze, drench it again. And then I had to do that one more time, and this time with a single bottle. There was a faint return of the stink. And now there's no stink. But each time that was done, including when the person sold me the vehicle, you, you would thought that you'd gotten the... Cigarettes stink out of the vehicle, yet you didn't. And if the smell's there, the thing causing the smell's there, the nicotine, the residues, etc. That's how I think these buckets are, right? That plastic can take in and absorb some of this stuff, and it does. And if we contain it, you know, sealed after the fact, the little bit that's there builds up. Where if it could continue to off-gas, chlorine is remarkable, Uh, and it's it, it's it's rapidity of off-gassing, right? So um, there's a long answer to a simple question. <laughs> Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Melissa in Illinois here. I wanted to share the experience my husband and I had working with Bill Wilson of Midwest Permaculture, who we first heard about on this show. We had him come out to our property to help us design a trail system for our back two acres. He and his intern, Matt, came out and marked contour lines, and we came up with a two-swale design that would help us capture and use the rainfall rather than have it run off our property. We were having trouble finding an excavator operator. Everyone we talked to looked at us like we were nuts or told us that we were just going to make a mess of our yard and our neighbors would hate it. After talking with Bill, he proposed we give his, one of his students a shot. Al had equipment operating experience and wanted to expand his skill set into excavator operations. A day and a half later, our yard was a beautiful mess. We began laying clover and planting trees, and then we anxiously waited for a big rain event. We finally got it last weekend. Over two inches of rain fell within four hours with another inch overnight. As we walked the swales, we marveled at how different the landscape felt. It was amazing to see what the swales were capable of and wonderful to imagine the impact they would have on the land. We no longer had a river running through our yard or a moat around our household. We were so thankful to all of those who helped us to begin this transformation. Thanks a lot for the show and for all you do. Bye. There's actually a couple different reasons that I played that call. One, I just thought it was cool that uh, Bill... Wilson, who is a great permaculturist, by the way, out of Midwest Permaculture in Illinois, was able to help Melissa get this done. I, I, I just thought that was awesome. Uh, the other thing is, <coughs> it's kind of the same thing and different at the same time, is really two, I guess, issues here. One is the perception that it'll look bad. Your neighbors won't like it. It'll be ugly. First of all, if you're an equipment operator and I'm paying you to do something, and as long as you do it the way that I want it done and you understand what I want, you don't need to worry about what my neighbors think. What the equipment operator saying that is really saying, I don't understand it, I don't think it's big enough to warrant my effort, and since I don't get it, I don't really want to do it, so I'm making some bullshit excuse and turning the job down instead of just saying I don't want the job. I found finding an operator to be very difficult to do work here until I lucked out that my next-door neighbor's son is kind of a jack-of-all-trades handyman and is decent at running equipment. And this is what I've learned about swaling. If you can run an excavator, you need about 50 feet before you get really good at making swales. That's all you need. If you're if you already know how to run an excavator a little bit, if you've if you've run backhoes and you're good at digging with a backhoe, when you, and you've never been on an excavator, when you get on an excavator, you're going to feel like you got into a freaking Corvette. 
I mean, it is so easy compared to a backhoe. It is so smooth. If anything, you have to get a little bit used to how much more power is at your fingertips. Because pound for pound, an excavator is a much tougher machine than a backhoe. And the way the center of gravity and the weight is in them gives them, you know, an incredible mechanical advantage in addition to the just the additional raw power that they have. So if you can find somebody that knows how to run an excavator that will listen to you, they can put swells in all day long. You may need to get a little bit more specialized when you start putting dams and ponds and things like that in. And where you really need to find the right guy is when you're doing a pond fed by, attached by, and using a swale for its overflow. That's where it gets tricky. But just swaling, I would tell you that if you have any aptitude for running equipment at all, if you've ever run any equipment at all, you could probably do this yourself. Now, some things we learned to make really nice swales. We got some line paint and gave uh, my, my excavator guy, John, a line on the ground to where to go in with. And the swells went from being edgy and jaggy and eh, to just this beautiful swale. Just gorgeous cut line. And you can stand and look, even now, that they've had almost a year to mature now. And you can look at the first one, and you can see, eh, and you look at the second one, and that back cut is just sweet. All right, so that's another thing you can do. You can do it either with a, you know, and, and line paint's cheap stuff, right? You don't even need, you can use like the 99 cent Uh, Walmart white paint and just spray a line and give that guy a place to put that bucket in and man it's not hard it's not hard um, the next thing is I think that this is a situation where you start to see the value of a consultant so Bill comes in and marks the lines and she starts trying to get somebody to come do the digging, and no one wants to do it, and Bill says, hey, I've got a guy. So Bill has a guy that can do the digging, even though he's new to it, because Bill knows what I just told you. Swales, if you're going to start with Earthworks and learning to run a machine, you can do it wrong, but if you know what you're trying to do, it's just a matter of keeping that bucket at a certain level and going the same depth everywhere and drag the dirt forward and drag the dirt forward and drag the dirt point the tracks in the direction you're going, move the excavator, Doom, 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 move the excavator, doom, and you can go fast. Once you get a, a rhythm, man, you can cook through them. Um, but the other thing was, when you're getting all these guys that do this for a living, saying, oh, it's going to mess your yard up, oh, it's going to do this, that consultant that's done it before that's saying, no, it's not, this is how it works, this is why we've picked this location, gives you the confidence to be committed and go through and get it done, if you don't already have it yourself. Um So, number one, kudos, thanks to you, Bill. I know you don't listen to every show, but hopefully you'll hear this, and thank you for, for doing such a good job for one of our audience members. Uh, I can definitely recommend Bill for those of you in the Midwest. I can tell you that uh, Nick Ferguson, who uh, is out of Louisiana, if you have some, if you now listen, this is something I have to clarify here with Bill, with Nick, with anybody. If you want someone to come to you, especially like a couple states away and all, it is not going to be cheap. It's not, because it can't be, right? I mean, it just if you're going to go four or five hundred miles in a truck and drive it, you know, the guy's going to be into it for four or five hundred dollars in fuel and 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 and, and meals. So, uh, with that caveat, if you need somebody, Nick is taking clients right now, and he does a great job. If you're up in the Midwest, give Bill a call; he's taking clients too. Um, but Nick, who's our partner in Perma Ethos 
and runs permacultureclassroom.com, comes with also with my highest recommendation, and he's got the time to take you on as a client if you want someone to come help you do this stuff. Uh, and his website, again, is permacultureclassroom.com, Bill's site, midwestpermaculture.com. I don't know how much... I don't know how much space Bill has for clients right now. I'm sure he has some, uh, but I've, I've talked to Bill a lot of times where it's like, I can't take anybody right now. So I don't know where he's at with that. But both of those guys are stellar. And I get people a lot of times that want me to come do it. I'm referring you to one of those two people, guys. I, you know, I'd say Ben, but Ben is busier than a one-legged man in a butt contest. I'm talking about Ben Falk. Um, you know, I mean, Joe would be a great consultant for you, but he's running our own farm right now. Uh, me, I'm not in the consulting business. I'm just not. That's not what I do. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Actually, I'm not done yet. I'm sorry. I mean, I just swales are magic, and I know some of you guys are like, oh, I'm tired of hearing about ditches. They're not ditches. They're swales. They're special ditches. Um, the one thing that, uh, that Melissa said that's so true is the gratifying effect the first time those things fill up. When you see a full swell and you realize... All that water was just going to go away, and now it's going into the land. You start to act. You, I've heard people say, I don't really understand the swell. Look at one that's full. Add the volume of water up in your head, and think about it percolating slowly through the land, and you'll get it. But there's something else that you almost have to be somewhere. When you walk on a lot of land that's not been managed and cultivated for a long time, even if it's had a, it's got a lawn and it's been mowed and it's green, when you walk on it, the grass is soft, but the dirt isn't. There's a compaction. The earth feels like pavement. You might as well be walking on sidewalk. It's just, you know, you, when you're walking, you're like, that's not. And then when you walk in a forest, there's a spongy nature to the soil. Not just the leaf litter and everything, but there's the, the, there's a, there's a bounce in the land. After your soils fill up the first time and start to soak in the land, even long before the trees are up and the food forest in, when you walk the land, you feel that. And I, I can only say that you feel it. And by the way, Melissa also sent me a blog post that shows her swales all filled up with water and contour lines and everything, and I have a link in the show notes for you. Now let's take that other call. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from New Jersey. I just finished listening to your uh, Monday show about the uh, education and the possibilities for education in this country. Um, just an example of something I did with my daughter. She's 14 now. She'll be 15 next week. And um, about a year ago, she wanted an iPhone 4. I uh, I told her, okay, I have the means to get her one, and all her friends have one. And, you know, you feel a little bit bad for your daughter, but you don't want to spoil her either. So I told her, I said, look, you read 50 books before a certain date. It was about five months of 175 pages or more, of which 20 of those books are of my choice. She did it with flying colors. A year later, she has her iPhone 4 with no problems. I held up my part of the deal. She held up hers. And she's made comments to me about how her reading habits have increased her ability to think, her ability to study, and her ability to absorb information just in the classroom. And how her uh, schoolmates have noticed her change in how she learned. Just a thought, and, uh, you know, she makes me very proud. Have a great day. Love the show. Bye. 
Boy, a lot of teachable moments come up in my head when I hear this story. This is great. I, I'll tell you, first of all, there are parents that would say things like, they should read just because it's the right thing to do and you shouldn't be tempting them on the phone or paying them money when they get good grades or whatever. You know what? What works, works. If it doesn't hurt anything, what works, works. So kudos to you for finding a creative way to make somebody work for something in a way that, that benefited them. Because that's what you really did. The work she did did not benefit you. And in some ways it did because you're, you know, you feel good when your kids do something like that, right? So you get a, a reward and you also get to kind of tick a box of like badass parenting 101 this, on this one. Yeah. Okay. That's it. But in the end, she gets the greater benefit. So by giving somebody the ability to work for something they want and benefit themselves, that is always great. And that's what great companies do. It, you, the great companies are built because the employee's hard work benefits them more than it directly does the company. The company gets an overall benefit from the combined effort. That's that's how you, you really, I mean, that's what Google does. Google actually requires their employees to spend some time every week working on their own project of their choosing, whatever they want to do. And that's, so that's, that you're, you're headed down that road with that. That's awesome. Um, the other thing is, this is the right way to do something like this. I know someone, I won't say who, but I know two people, a man and a woman that are married and have some kids. And they are great parents overall. They really are. But in these types of teachable moments, they always miss the mark. Because here's what they do. They make a big show of you're not getting it yet. You're not getting it yet. I don't care that all your friends have a phone. You're not old enough for one yet. You have to wait. You have to wait. You have to wait. And they give them little things that they can do, but they never really say, clear cut, do this, buy then, then you get this. They don't do it that way. And they make a big deal out of it, and they say things like save some money and we'll talk about it, and if you get some money, maybe we'll like pay part of it for you or whatever. And then when it comes down to it at the very end, they go out, pay for it in full, give it to the kid, no strings attached, and they buy them the very best of the best. They buy like So she wanted an iPhone 4, she would have ended up with a 5S by the time it was all over with. If it was the, the, This is not the way to do things. The, the, these folks pat themselves on the back. Oh, we did good because we didn't just give it to them. We made them wait longer. But for what? For spite? For for what purpose? See, what I love about what this, this father did was the rules were abundantly clear. right? And some kids went, 50? <sighs> That's so many books. Well, it's 10 a month. It's 10 a month. It's not that hard. And I love you. I get to pick 20 of them. Because what I love about that, the way that keeps that motivated, they read a book they pick, they like it, they want to read the next one in the series. Ah, it's my turn, here's a book. Now you're motivated to get my book done, not for the iPhone, because you want to read the next book in your series. Because you know kids pick books in series. And here's the thing, 30 of them are whatever she wants to read. Because you know what? If your kid's reading, your kid's learning. I don't care what they're reading. I don't care if they're reading freaking Stan Lee comic books. I really don't. If your child is reading, that's good. The very action of the mind that's required to read engages, the, especially at the developmental stages of children, where the synapses are still being form, formed far more rapidly than we can as adults. So that's, that's awesome too. But I think the biggest lesson here is when challenged, kids will rise to the challenge. And the reason we have so much failure amongst our children today is because they're not challenged. We'll tell them to work hard and you need to do your homework or whatever, but we're not actually challenging them, 
right? So that's just like the only reason you tell a kid you have to work harder on your studies is because they're not performing. That's not challenging them. That's 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 actually shoving their failure in their face. That's what that is. That's like you suck at this, so work harder at sucking. Right? That, that's that, you know when I my son, I was very lucky going through school with him. He did well at most things, but he did struggle with some math at one time, and it was math that I went, I don't remember this crap. And I'm not just going to tell him to work harder. So we went out and we hired a, t a tutor, and that tutor worked with him. I think we, he went twice a week for about four weeks, and he said, I think I got this now. We asked her. She goes, I think he's got it. Bring him back. if he." And that was it. But we brought in the help to meet the need there. But challenges, challenges are the things that actually last. Because I guarantee you that my son doesn't remember how to do that math, and he's probably never going to ever do it again. And you can tell them they need it, but you're full of shit unless they're going to be an engineer or an architect or something. And you know that when you tell when you lie to them and tell them that. So that I don't know was a lasting teachable moment other than the fact that we knew that it was better to bring a pro in to do that particular thing. That's the bigger lesson that he got out of it. Another lesson we had for our son one time. This was a quick one. And this was so lasting and so effective. We decided to go on a vacation. I think he was about 10. And we were going to go up to north, northwestern Arkansas, up near Bull Shoals Lake. And an ice storm came. And if you don't go to the airport and, you, and your plane's not canceled, you're screwed, right? So you got to go to the airport anyway. We go to the airport. The people, it's a small airline called Big Sky Air. I don't even know if they're in business anymore. Um, and they're just not there. Like, no one showed up from the airline in Dallas where it wasn't ice or stuff. Just like, I guess everywhere that was going to fly that morning, they had canceled their flights, but no one knew nothing except they were attached to Delta. So the lady from Delta sees us stand there like, what's up? We tell her, she gets on the phone, she contacts big sky and Helena and they go, yeah, this and they basically, they were partners with Delta for the little commuter pieces that they did that, you know, Delta didn't fly. And they said, you tell them because this happened and because they didn't get an answer and because they're sitting there, that they can fly anywhere Delta flies in the United States, and we'll pick it up if they want to go somewhere. And we obviously can't go where we wanted to go. But you, so we decided eventually, after like finding out like six different places we would go on a spur of the moment for like a three-day trip, that the only place we could actually get to and get home from and make work with our thing was Nashville, Tennessee. So we get on the plane, we go to Nashville, Tennessee, we get a rental car, no reservations, just walk in, find a rental car, and we're going to drive around Tennessee and see stuff. And it was one of the best vacations we ever had, by the way. It's kind of a cool way to do a vacation. You can't be late for anything because you don't know where you're going. You can't be stressed because you can't be late. You don't know you're going to miss anything because you don't know what you haven't found yet. You just kind of wander around and find stuff. But with a 10-year-old in the car like that, you get into the complaints, right? The complaining, oh, when are we going to be there? Well, we don't know where we're going, so we don't know where we're going to be, that type of thing. So the first day was pretty good, but we had a little bit too much whiny, complainy stuff. So the next morning... My brilliant evil plot was, Matthew, I'll bet there's no way at all that you can make it through the entire day without complaining even one time. I'll bet you can't do it. And he said, I sure can. I said, I don't think you can. I don't think it's possible. I don't think you can do it. And he said, well, I'll bet you I can. And I said, well, I'll bet you you can't. Now, what did he? what was his reward? What, what did he win if he won the bet? He didn't ask for anything, so I didn't offer anything. It was a, it was a man-to-man -man bet on pride. At the end of the day, somebody has to admit they were wrong about the bet. That was it. He did it. 
He did it. And you know what he said when we were having dinner that night? This was the best day we've ever had. I said, really? He goes, it was great. I had so much fun today. I said, really? What was different? And he kind of like, I was different. But do you understand that teaching moment there? So these teachable moments with our children can be these large goals. 50 books in five months for a kid? Yeah, it's a lofty goal, but it's worth challenging them for. One day without complaining seems insignificant, but that is there. And I know he remembers that because he's told me even recently that that still shapes how he deals with situations, understanding how his attitude actually affects his enjoyment. And it's better for him to learn how to be positive about most things than it is to be negative about most things. And, you know, when we talked about this, he said, there's no way I could have explained it that way when, 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 when we did that, when you taught me that. But that's what I learned. Your responsibility is to be the first and most important teacher to your children, parents. It really is far more important than the teachers they have at school. That's your first responsibility. And, but this is what I've learned about great teachers. The greatest teachers empower and challenge the student to teach themselves. His daughter learned by teaching herself over five months. Not just how to get something you're striving for, but all the education from all of the reading. She was teaching herself. My son taught himself self-control. I didn't teach it. The, the really important life skills you can't actually teach someone. You enable their learning. Anyway, let's take another call. I think we've got one more and we're done for today. Hey, Jack, it's J.D. in Pennsylvania. My question is, how do you see the modern survival movement, as you've coined the term, transitioning in the coming years to more mainstream culture? And secondly, what do you think the uh, potential threat, specifically to those individuals that currently or have plans for having a small uh, home-based business um, around this uh, new uh, modern survival movement? Here are the details. I see a lot of examples every day of, uh, of how this uh, way of thinking and this uh, movement is gaining momentum, uh, stuff my wife shows me through uh, sites like Pinterest, I think also in some of the new TV shows that are on channels like the HGTV and the Food Network. Um, my wife's showing me a couple examples of uh, shows where these new hosts are living what can be best described as a homesteading type of lifestyle and they're promoting it through a, a cooking show or a, a design show. Um, so I'm just curious what you think is going to happen is, is this, this way of thinking becomes more mainstream. Um, I think uh, it's inevitable that uh, some of the big companies, uh, the entertainment industry, are going to jump in on this and try to promote themselves um, in, this, in this thinking. But uh, I'm curious uh, where you see the, the modern survival movement uh, uh, transitioning in, in uh, the coming years. So um, thanks for all you do. Uh, I love the show, and I look forward to your response. Thanks, Jack. Bye. So you got a lot going on there. Let's try to take some of these things. So what's the biggest threat to someone doing this business? I don't know if you mean, like, from government, but if you mean that, just... You know, I'm, I'm done worrying about what government's going to do next. I am. I, I am going to do what's best for me and my family, and if government gets in the way, I'm going to fight back. However I can. I've started out by locating myself and my life in a state with a lot of things that other people have to worry about don't exist here. 
right? And then I picked a place in that state where nobody bothers me, in an unincorporated part of, of a county. And that's it. I've backed off as far as I can at this point. I'm full steam ahead. And now, if you mean threats from, like, an oversaturated market and things like that, there's, there is no doubt that there is, like, a dog pile of people trying to get into the preparedness, homesteading, survivalist space right now uh, that see it like it's a white-hot opportunity. And these range from good people that are just trying to find something that's good in their life and some kind of business, and they like this, so they're choosing that, to people that are professional Internet racketeers. Right? These are the people that just, whatever's hot, that's what they're selling, professional info marketers. And, and I have very little uh, usefulness for those people, and they do sell a lot of shit. They use any medium they can get their advertising into, and they sell garbage. Like, you know, the, was it 29 items or 41 items or whatever it is to hoard. The guy behind that is a sleazy, sleazy individual. I met him face-to-face. -face. He asked if we could work together, and I said, I don't think so. I, no, not interested, okay? I mean, I was nice about it, but I mean, it, honestly, I just think it's, it's sleaze merchantry. But then there's this whole other group of people that are just trying to figure out how to skin it and they're not sure what to do. I think that the biggest threat to somebody that's trying to make a business in this space is that you're going into the business because it's hot. Right? I, I think that's always a bad idea. I think that always results in misery and failure in the end. I think that if you're going to do something, do what you're passionate about. And and all other people that are in the business space that say, oh, hey, you can't pay the bills with passion, whatever. Listen, this is not 1900 anymore. Okay? It's not. You don't need a factory and 100 employees to make a living and to make a damn good living. You don't need it. There are, there are ways to take 90% of what an employee is needed for and either let technology do them or empower yourself to do them very, very quickly. And, and you only need help with that other 10% now. So that, that, that day is gone. And this is also not the time where I need, like, I need big media to reach people. I don't need that anymore. I can have a niche of a niche of a niche online, and I've got a couple billion people to market to when I only need a couple thousand that want to do business with me on a consistent basis to make a living. So, and I, there's a million different ways to take payments. So that, that, that world is gone. And it makes no sense to do something you're not passionate about. Because even the people that say this, that are very successful people, are, are talking out of one side of their face and lying out the other. Mark Cuban stays, uh, uh, you know, just jumps to example for me. Mark Cuban did a blog post years ago, that, you know, passion doesn't pay the bills and that type of thing, and you know, it's, not about, it's about needs and this and all. But he's full of shit. He's absolutely full of shit. Because if it wasn't for Broadcast.com, Mark Cuban would not be a billionaire. And Mark Cuban built Broadcast.com for one driving reason. What started out as AudioNet, he was driving around in his car in Dallas, and he was thinking, you know, I'm hearing this college basketball game, but wouldn't it be great if I could hear my guys from, from, from Indiana on the radio here? And he figured, wait a minute, you can transmit sound across the Internet. And that was the genesis of AudioNet, which was Broadcast.com, which made Mark Cuban a billionaire. Do you know what Mark Cuban's biggest freaking passion in the world is? Pa 
basketball. He loves basketball. Why do you think he bought the Dallas Mavericks? Do you think he bought it because he thought it was a savvy business deal? No, it was his passion leading him to take his, his gains from what he... So he's full of crap. Everything he has is because of passion. And it, he's done some cool stuff since then with HDNet and all, but nothing he's done has ever had the magic that he created a broadcast. And I know that. I know that for a fact because I knew him. He was my customer, and I went there, and I know the people that worked there. And they were Google before Google was Google. And I don't mean, as because they weren't a search engine company. I mean the cool culture, the place where people were excited to come to work, the place where when I walked in, it was electric. Everybody in that place was excited and happy. And people say that Mark's, you know, what Mark built isn't that important because Yahoo ruined it. Well, it's not. It's not Mark's fault that Yahoo ruined it. It's really not. Yahoo's ruined everything they've touched. That has nothing to do with Mark. So I'm not saying I love the guy or anything. I'm just saying that because I've just picked on him, right? But but this is a guy who's a billionaire because he chased his passion. So I think the biggest threat to anybody getting into this space is the wrong motivation. Well, so-and-so is successful at it, so I'll do it too. I saw this with people like Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary Vaynerchuk went into the wine industry, did wine library TV. He was a, he was so different than anybody else in wine. Well, I'm going to go into the wine industry. Why? Because he's successful with it. Well, you're not Gary Vaynerchuk. Right? You don't, you don't get down on the ground and taste the dirt underneath the grapevine and then say, where's that flavor in the grape? Well, I could, but you don't. He was that guy before he was that guy publicly. People who have met me will tell you, I am who you hear on the air. If you come to my house and we hang out and I cook some steaks with you, about the only thing is you might hear the F-bomb a time or two and I don't do that on the air. That's about the only difference you're going to get out of me. I am me. This is me. This is not an act. So whatever your motivation is behind getting into a business, make sure it's something you really are passionate for, that you really love, and then make that work into a business model. So that's that's the threat that I see. I don't see any any type of like bubble pop, right? If that's what we were, because that leads us to the other part of the question. The other part: of, What's the future of this? What's what's going on? And is it different than other times when things like this have happened? It is different. This is a back to the land movement, and I don't mean it as just literally to the land. This is in everything that goes with the totality of that men, that mentality: a back to the land and understanding that. Our grandparents were smart. There's more people at least throwing a couple fruit trees in their backyard right now than I think any time in, in, in my adult life. And, and I'd say in my life. And I grew up when everybody already had it. But it wasn't... Like when people moved into a new house... I remember even when I was a kid. People moved into a new house. They planted begonias. Right? Not peaches. There was very few people, even when I was a kid, that were actually going into new properties and really bringing them up the way that all the other properties still were. I don't have time for that. I had a job, but we went away from it. And we went away from so many things. See, this is not, I call it modern survivalism, but it's not about, you know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, now you know it's not just about being a survivalist. Modern survivalist is different than survivalist. Modern survivalists, we take all the stuff we can learn from the primitive and the tough guy stuff and the the, the, the the outdoor stuff and the bushcrafting and all that, 
and then we take all the technology, and then we take all the homesteading, and we take all the smart ways to handle our money, the smart way to manage our lives. We take all of that in totality. We put that together under one umbrella, and we we design our lifestyles for ourselves based on that umbrella. And that means that even though all of it's there, you may say, I don't really care about backpacking. And I might say, I love it. But it's there if you want it. And you can either partake in it, or you can say, you know, I'm not going to go hike the Appalachian Trail, but that one little thing the backpackers have figured out, since I have access to the information, I'm going to pull that into my life for when I'm just fishing. right? And there's another person like, oh, I'm not going to fish. I don't fish. I want to hunt. There's some people that, that think fishermen are dumb because they hunt elk. And the guy's like, bang, 700 pounds of meat, go away. I understand what he's saying. I get it. I don't agree, but I, I get it, you know? My uncle used to say the same thing. He said, I'll tell you what I learned about hunting versus fishing. I can put a lot more meat into my refrigerator a lot faster. Of course, we didn't live where you can catch, you know, 40-pound salmon, 10 or 15 at a shot. So it's all relative. So all these things are relative. But what, instead of, to, to understand the future, one must examine the past. And that's true, but I think one must also examine the present in the context of both the predicted future and the realized past. So it's three parts to understand where we're going. It is what we're, we're extrapolating for the future based on the past, but we, what, what gets left out is an analysis of the present and how we got here from the past. When you connect those three, then you see a clear vision forward. So let's talk about how we got here. Right after World War II and all the way up into the 70s, there were parts of back-to-the-land movements. In fact, there were back-to-the-land movements in the 30s associated with the Great Depression prior to the war. And those back-to-the-land movements were close enough to remembering really living off the land that they were a rejection of progress. Because we've had real For everything that, that government does wrong and everything that society has screwed up, there's a counter thing that's, that's really great that we have. I don't know about you, but I am not about to go outside and start tearing my air conditioner apart for scrap metal and getting rid of it. I like my air conditioner. And I like the fact that I can have one. And I like the fact that I can sit here and talk to you, and I know it's about 94 degrees outside right now, and I'm not dripping wet while I'm talking on the microphone. So I like my air conditioner. I like my microwave oven. I like my computer. I like my Samsung CO1U condenser studio microphone that I'm speaking into right now that lets me do my job. I like my internet connection. I like all this stuff. I like the fact that I can get my vehicle and I can go somewhere and I can get something that I need. I like that I can get on Amazon with, you, with Prime and order something and in two days it'll be at my front door and I don't have to leave my house. I love all this stuff. I love my GPS. I love my video cameras that let me document all of my traditional homesteading and share them with you. I love all the technology. And the original back-to-the-land movement, part of why it failed is it rejected that. It was, I'm going to go make a windmill, grow all my own food, and live off the land, and I don't need nobody no more. And after a few months of doing that, for all but very rare people, it don't work no more. They're tired, they're hungry, they're stinky, and they're miserable, and they're broke, and they just want to go back to things being a little bit easier, and they realize that was dumb, I don't want to do that anymore. There's a reason that we move forward, and they turn away from it. That's what happened to the various pulses of back to the land. 
all the way up and through the 70s. By the time we got to the 80s, me generation, the real back to the land movement was all but dead. It was over, it had had its day, and it was done. Now what happened next? As we came through the 70s, we came through a recession. There was actually a depression, a stagflation, a, a, a one of the darkest economic moments that most people that are at least my age or older can remember because we're not old enough to remember the Great Depression. The optimism of the 50s and 60s was replaced with this great pessimism. There were questions like, are we done? I mean, I don't think people that are old enough to have lived through the 70s understand, like, part of why we're not that concerned about the economic turmoils that are ahead of us is we saw that and we saw those questions, is America done? Are we going to go away? Are we done? And people believed we were. And then we had Ronald Reagan's morning in America. The nation rose from that challenge. And the problem was that instead of fixing what was wrong, we rose from it by borrowing from the future at a rate that's never been seen before in modern history, and we've continued to do so right up until the present day. And initially, that worked. Jobs start being, started being created, and it collided with a time in history like nothing we've ever seen before. Really, the rise of technology through the 80s into the 90s it was the most rapid expansion of technology at the consumer level that ever occurred. I mean, you can look at the Industrial Revolution and all these innovations that were made in manufacturing, but when it came down to the technology that empowered the individual, do you remember Walkman? The Walkman, do you? Right? The big tape deck and the stupid cheap ear, right? And now what do you have? You have an iPhone that that's just one thing it does is play music and it downloads music and it... Re I mean, the, 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 the evolution of technology, personal computers... I had an IBM XT to date myself. You can't do much with one of those. But it was cool, right? I also had a Commodore 128D. That was the advanced Commodore, right? Those things are, 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 are freaking, what do you call them? Uh, antiques now, right? They're, if they're anything, they're like interesting props in a film or something. They're, they're just not useful for anything anymore. And they were cutting edge technology in 1985, 1986. And we, so, We had this massive rise of technology at the same time that we had this, this loan-based prosperity. And people got sucked into it. And everybody started to say, well, I can have a bigger house. I'll just take another mortgage. And it wasn't, oh, it's not much payment. I got a raise. And it just, it just cascaded and cascaded and cascaded. And it got credit, got easier and looser. And people just started getting credit card after credit card. And, and people made jokes about it the whole time. And people kept saying the whole time, this has to end. But people didn't really believe that it would end. And then over time, long before the Great Recession that started in 2007, really, but it was official in 2008 when we actually knew it was already happening. Um, long before that happened, people started to realize something. They started to realize that their lives were empty. They just... They started to sit down and put their hands in their face and think about how long it was going to be before they were debt-free if they stopped spending money, and they saw no way to even stop spending money. They started to look around their homes and realize how much crap they had and realize that they still weren't happy. Divorce rate continued to go up. Um, the, it, you know, the, the number of women having children out of wedlock 
and I don't care if you're married by the state, but without a father in their lives, right? It continued to go up. Um, we just ended up as a people lost. Everybody had everything we were ever told we wanted, and we started to see cracks in that system and failures in that system. But even before the failures manifested themselves, people started to ask themselves, and what am I going to do? And people started to feel useless. This is part of our problem with our education system. People started to feel functionally like, what do I, what value do I, people started to look at their jobs and go, would anybody give a shit if I just didn't go? Other than me, because I won't get a paycheck. Right? Like, would it actually matter? Will, will, will anything bad happen if I don't do my job? Will, it, will there be any actual consequences for anybody other than a guy that has to do my job because I'm not there? I mean, like, in totality. Right? I remember one of my favorite shows through the 90s was Friends. And I remember Chandler who did something, you know, a processor of some kind, right? And he said, because if I don't enter those numbers, well, it doesn't really matter. See, popular culture is all, often, even if they don't know they're doing it, a reflection at the underlying pulse of America. And when you look now and you see the obscenity of things like the Kardashians and Jersey Shore, and I know those are older reality shows, I don't even know if they're on anymore, but that kind of crap, and the excessive exuberance that we see in this stuff, and, and all this nonsense, that is the, the sum manifestation of how stupid we've become. And how hollow our lives have become. This movement exists because of that hole. Because of that hole in people's soul and mind. Because they start to say for themselves, can I do anything that matters anymore? And then they say, well, well, what can I do? And they say, well, the first thing I can do is take control. I can stop going deeper in the hole. And then they start saying, well, how can I save money? And, well, the first way you can stop, you can start saving money is to stop wasting it. So, you know, they do the typical shit. Can I get a better deal on my electric bill or whatever and put better light bulbs in it? And that only goes so far. And you start saying, well, I spent a lot of money on this. What if I did it for myself? And then they do one. This is the magic. This is where it all turns around. They do one thing that they didn't think they could do for themselves. And not only does it work, not only are they able to pull it off, not only does it save them some money, but they think to themselves, wow, I did that. And then they tell other people, like, look what I did. Look what I did. And people are like, wow, you did that? How'd you do that? Oh, I went to YouTube or whatever, and they did this. And the person they tell is like, wow, I never thought you could do that. And they, they maybe I'll do that too, or I'll do something else. And, and the, the, then there's this, this weird feeling in somebody's body when this happens. They, it's been so long that they, they don't even know what it is. They might have to Google it to find out what it is. Self-satisfaction. It's like, wow, that's what that feels like. You know, and I'm not talking about people that are, that have been failures their whole lives. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about like somebody that's never done anything successfully. What I'm talking about is somebody that everything they've done has never really mattered internally to them. Or just very, very short term. I got a really great job now. I'm making $150,000 a year. Woohoo! Oh, this job's not that great. <sighs> I got to get up and go to Virginia. I don't even like Virginia. I'm not putting Virginia down. Just give me an example, right? My kids are growing up while I'm not home, or even the people that don't travel, they're getting home at 8 o'clock at night. And it's, it's one thing that 
they're working that hard and they're working that long because I've always worked like that. I've had to actually stop myself from working. I've had, I've had to look at my father's history and the way the man worked and go, I can't be him. I can't become a workaholic. Right. And I think most people would call me a workaholic and I'm like, if you only knew what it really looks like. <laughs> so it's not that they haven't achieved things. Some of them have been very high income earners. Most of the people that you see really doing stuff that really are changing their life are not people that are pulling themselves out of the, the gutter. They're not people that are pulling themselves out of a ghetto or a, a trailer park or something like that. They're people, like the people you see doing this that are cha- making radical changes. And I'm not putting anybody down that comes from, you know, the poverty lifestyle and builds themselves up with this too, because you can, but you're seeing most of the people turning to it actually had the life that a lot of poor people think would make them happy if they could only get it. You understand that? How many people, successful business people, accountants, engineers, et cetera, have we had on the air that are now doing something in this space? Do you, do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Because it wasn't that they didn't make money. It wasn't that they weren't a success in other people's eyes. It's that they just felt what they were doing really didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. Wouldn't have mattered if they stopped. Right? And, and there's people that they're even in professions where they think that's the case. They, that's why they go into them. Cops many times do this. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put bad guys in jail. I'm going to, and, and you know what? Most of them actually, they are making a difference. Somebody, Somebody is safer because of what they do. Somebody didn't get killed because they put somebody in jail. It, there are good cops. For every shitty cop, there's, there's six good ones. And I won't go into a rant about how the six good ones should be policing the one bad one. But, but the truth is, there are good cops. But yet, when they look at the totality of it, they feel like, I'm digging in sand. You don't have to dig in sand. It just keeps falling back in the hole. Like, nothing I'm doing really matters. And they're thinking the wrong way. Like, I want to matter to like the world. And when they find these things they can do, like growing a tree, feeding their family really good quality food, they realize that the person they should be trying to matter to is themselves and their families. Self-worth. This is why it's different this time. The Back to the Land movement in, in the 30s, and then in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was a rejection of progress. The movement today is not a rejection of the progress of technology. It's a rejection of the regress of technology. All the things that we lost along the way that were replaced with something fake. It's a rejection of that. Still use the GPS. I still want to know what the next thing we're going to do is that's going to enable us to do even more. But I don't want to lose the ability to do things for myself, to build skills in myself, to have self-worth. When we had the original movement, it was I'm rejecting everybody. This movement is about reclaiming yourself. So I think it has multi-generational legs. This will be around and get bigger for a long time. Because it works. Because it works. 
If you when people bring me like an invention that they say, like this guy created this thing, what do you think it's is it is it going to be? Does it do something that other things don't? Does it work? Does it do it well? If the answer is yes to both of those things, it's probably going to make it. If it doesn't actually do something that something else isn't already doing better, uh, or it doesn't just even if it's like so it works but it doesn't work, it's not going to happen. It's like this tractor. I bought this tractor called the Raven when we moved into our homestead. I was like, man, this 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 is the future. This thing was like a, a, an ATV, a tractor, and a generator and a golf cart in one. It ran on gas and it ran on electric. It was a hybrid that charged its own batteries when it was running. And that meant that you could shut it off and run it electric. It was big and beefy. It had double blades for cutting the grass. And it had a 7,100-watt generator under the seat. So you could be out working on something, fire it up, and plug into it. And you had all the power in the world right there. And it ran like an ATV. You could drop the blades off it, and it would go anywhere a typical four-wheeler would go. Except it didn't work. It didn't work. That was the problem with it. It had failure after failure. So we returned it and bought a cheap, not really cheap, but just a typical Husqvarna lawn tractor. Why? It worked. So what's that got to do with this? This works. When people grow their own food, they get to eat it, they feel good, and they are healthier. It works. When people get a small laying flock of hens and start collecting eggs and eat those eggs, they taste better than anything you can buy from the store. And you can't tell me they don't. You can't tell me they don't. You can't. Eating an egg at a restaurant now is like eating cardboard for me. right? So it works. When you take your child and you challenge them to do these things with you, their self-esteem goes up. It works. Giving them a ribbon does not make their self-esteem go up. Challenging them and having them accept and meet the challenge makes their freaking self-esteem go up. And everything about this is challenging. Not just for our children, but for us. Let me explain how this works. If I came up with exercise, okay, that made you feel incredible, not just when you were done, not I mean the whole thing. If I came up with exercise that felt like you were being massaged, And, I mean, it was just the in most, like, you would pay money to have this happen to you, whatever it was, right? That exercise would be taken on everywhere, and we would become the most fit nation ever known. Because people do what they like. The reason people don't exercise is they don't like it. Now, you can actually get to where you actually enjoy working hard. You can enjoy working out, whatever it is. But but in, there's still like this, I don't want to do this today. I feel sore, whatever. If you could take all that away and make it to where like it was better than sex, right? You'd have just people all over just in perfect health, okay? If you came up with food, you might as well be eating Freaking Tierra Masu cheesecake wrapped in caviar, man. It was just like, it was the most incredible tasting food in the world. But no matter how much of it you ate, you ended up at a perfect caloric intake for yourself, like magic. There'd be no fat people. Right? Because it, it works and it's enjoyable. Those are the two things. That's what the modern survival life is. It works and it's enjoyable. And... That's why it's going to be here to stay. Now, does that mean we'll never depart from it again? No. 
No. The younger people will probably at one point be old men and women shaking your heads going, I remember when we did this. We were stupid. <laughs> That'll probably happen at some point, but, uh, but I think we have a long way to go up before we start to cycle back down. And that doesn't mean that if you invest in something or start a business, you're guaranteed success. I'm talking about the totality of the concept of people caring for themselves, caring for their families, and putting self-worth above self, self-esteem. Boy, I wish I could have came up with that earlier. I could have done this a lot quicker. There it is. The, the, the modern survival movement is about improving one's self-worth versus one's self-esteem. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you